So, hello everybody, we are here for class 13, talking about the Catholic Church's position on sterilization, kind of moving away from looking at artificial reproductive technologies, specifically looking at tubal ligation vasectomy, and also hysterectomy, not for proper therapeutic purposes, uh, but as an intent of direct sterilization. And the church has already always seen this as morally unacceptable, basically because it's a type of contraception. Rather than contra- making rendering an act sterile, you're making the whole person and their reproductive function sterile. And there's a lack of openness to life, of course, and then in a very unique way, treating the body as an object for manipulation. I also think sort of the importance of this comes as a result of what we talked about last semester, the reverence due to the spousal and generative meanings of the body and the act. And so what we want to do today is look at sort of the essential teaching of the church. Uh, we're going to look at some of the teachings of Pius the Twelfth, Humanae Vitae, and then uh, a series of documents that came from the CDF, particularly addressing questions of what's called uterine isolation. And then we're going to look at hospitals and sterilization, Catholic hospitals, um, governments and sterilization, and then some pastoral situations. One of the first references in the modern era comes with Pius XII, at 11th, I'm sorry, in Costa Canubi, but it's really Pius Twelfth that speaks a fair bit about this uh, in the 1950s. In his famous allocution to midwives, um, he talks about this. He says, direct sterilization, that is, that is whose aim tends to, tends as a means or as an end in making procreation possible, is a grave violation of the moral law and therefore unlawful. Not even public authority has any right, under the pretext of any indication whatsoever, to permit it, and less still to prescribe it or have it used to the detriment of the innocent human being. You also see him make a reference to it in his allocution to International Society of Hematology. He actually sort of um, talks about sterilization, about genetics and conception, a very insightful one from the year 1958. Humanae Vitae also makes a direct reference. This, of course, is going to be Paul VI in 1968, saying, equally to be condemned, as the magisterium of the church has affirmed on many occasions, is direct sterilization, whether of the man or the woman, or the permanent or temporary. And so it's that same reasoning. We, we condemn the sterilization of the act. Each and every act must be open, but even more when it comes to sterilizing the whole person. But the big document that is referred to and deals with this in a very direct and thorough way is from 1975 from the CDF, Sterilizatio, Responses to Questions Concerning Sterilization in Catholic Hospitals. Uh, and so we're going to look at this document. It's not very long, neither are the other two from the CDF that we'll address from 93 and 2018. Uh, so we're going to almost kind of go by it over line by line. I encourage you, if you have the documents in front of you, uh, to read along. 
The document says any sterilization which of itself, that is, of its own nature and condition, has the sole immediate effect of rendering the generative faculty incapable of procreation, is to be considered direct sterilization, as the term is understood in the declarations of the Pontifical Magisterium, especially Pius XII. And so we've already looked at the two allocutions that it mentions here in the footnote. But here's the big distinction between direct sterilization and indirect. Uh, direct sterilization is I am directly intending as the object of my act to um, sterilize the person, to render uh, the, the, the being incapable of having children. But the indirect comes through that principle of double effect as an unintended consequence. So we're going to look at that a little bit more later. The document continues, therefore, notwithstanding any subjectively right intention of those whose actions are prompted by the care or prevention of physical or mental illness, which is foreseen or feared as a result of pregnancy. So we're talking about the object of the act here, regardless of that further intention. And the object is still going to be considered intrinsically evil. Such sterilization remains absolutely forbidden according to the doctrine of the church. And indeed, the sterilization of the faculty itself is forbidden for an even graver reason than the sterilization of individual acts, since it induces a state of sterility in the person, which is almost always irreversible. So again, it's not just the act, it's that more or less irreversible state that is rendered in the body of the person, uh, contributing to that constraining of or cutting off of the person's generative faculty. But then it goes into sort of referencing the principle of totality. It says that neither can one invoke the principle of totality in this case, in virtue of which principle interference with organs is justified for the greater good of the person. Sterility intended in itself is not oriented to the integral good of the person. As rightly pursued, proper order of goods being preserved inasmuch as it damages the ethical good of the person, which is the highest good since it deliberately deprives foreseen and freely chosen sexual activity of an essential element, that is, of the procreative element. And so here we have this reference to the principle of totality. So let's refresh ourselves what that is. We looked at it a little bit earlier in the semester. It's an individual may not dispose of his organs or destroy their capacity to function, except to the extent that this is necessary for the general well-being of the whole body. Destroying an organ or interfering with its capacity to function prevents the organ from achieving its natural purpose. And so, again, we look at the fact that if it's sick or an ailing one, that we can remove it. Or if it's normal functioning somehow causes greater harm to the body. Um, even if it is a sexual organ, as we looked at the case of that uh, individual, the testosterone that is produced causes the spread of a certain cancer that, that Pius looks at in his address to the Congress of Urology. And different rules really when it comes to the removal of those generative organs of the body. And the problem here is, though, if you are directly intending to sterilize uh, by, let's say, removing the, 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 the uterus in a hysterectomy, if it's sick or there's something wrong with it, 
yes, then it, or it's contributing to the, the greater illness in the body, then that could be acceptable. The problem is here, if you just don't want to have any more children, or if you think that there could be complications later down the line that are not directly tied to the removal of the uterus, well, then that's not going to be acceptable because it's direct sterilization. Um, that's what you are intending. That's what you're choosing to do, what your will is ordered towards, regardless of your further intention, um, particularly when it comes to tubal ligation, which is, of course, the tying of the tubes for the woman or the vasectomy. Uh, you are not removing an organ, but you are rendering a normal functioning organ incapable of functioning normally. So this is simply not going to be acceptable under the principle of totality. Now, you can look at sort of pious back in that address to your the urologist where he offers those criteria for justifying a procedure that results in the anatomic or functional mutilation of a healthy body part. And that first one is important. He says the retention of function of a particular organ within the whole organism is causing serious damage or constitutes a threat to it. Well, that's the thing, is that just because there may be complications to pregnancy later on down the line doesn't mean that the uterus is not functioning properly uh, or it's causing serious damage in itself. Um, it is things that come sort of secondarily from pregnancy, not from the uterus or the reproductive organs themselves. Now, that document also talks about governments and its responsibility towards sterilization and also Catholic hospitals and not cooperating with evil, but we're going to see more of that later. The bulk of what we really want to talk about, though, comes from two documents, uh, responses from the CDF that deal specifically with um, hysterectomies. Uh, the removal of the uterus. I think it should be pretty clear that a tubal ligation for a woman, a tying of the tubes, or a vasectomy is not going to be acceptable because we're not talking about sick um, or, 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 or ailed organs. We're talking about normally functioning organs that are not even removed but are rendered incapable of performing the normal function. Kind of like I'm going to do an operation to stop my eyes from seeing or for my lungs to beat from to beating. And we're doing it not for any health purposes, but because we are intending to directly sterilize. But there can be cases, certainly, when a hysterectomy is needed or required um, and it is not necessarily going to be sterilization. So there were certain cases over the years that were brought to the CDF. And the CDF first in 1993 uh, responded in these three questions to these three specific cases and then gave its reasoning. So this is case number one. When the uterus becomes so seriously injured, let's say during a delivery or a cesarean section, so as to render medically indicated even its total removal, hysterectomy, in order to counter an immediate serious threat to the life or health of the mother, is it licit to perform such a procedure, notwithstanding the permanent sterility, which will result from the woman? And it renders an affirmative decision. And the reasoning is this. In the first case, the hysterectomy is licit because it has a directly therapeutic character, even though it may be foreseen that permanent sterility will result. 
So this is the principle of double effect. In fact, it is the pathological condition of the uterus, a hemorrhage which cannot be stopped by other means, which makes its removal medically indicated. The removal of the organ has at its aim, therefore, the curtailing of a serious present danger to the woman independent of a possible future pregnancy. So this is immediate, clear and present danger. If we don't remove the uterus, the woman could hemorrhage and potentially die or, or have really serious uh, impact on her health. So the first one is going to be affirmative. There are cases where the hysterectomy is acceptable. But let's look at questions number two and three. When the uterus, e.g. as a result of a previous cesarean section, or cesarean sections, is in a state such that while not constituting in itself a present risk to the life or health of the woman, nevertheless is foreseeably incapable of carrying a future pregnancy to term without danger to the mother, danger which in some cases could be serious, is it listed to remove the uterus, hysterectomy, in order to prevent a possible future danger deriving from conception? And the response is negative. Also, question number three, in the same situation as in number two, is it listed to substitute tubal ligation, also called uterine isolation, which uterine isolation is a euphemism, a euphemism for tubal ligation, for the hysterectomy? since the same end would be attained if averting the risk of a possible pregnancy by means of a procedure which is much simpler for the doctor and less serious for the woman. Since in addition, in some cases, the ensuing sterility might be reversible. It's basically saying that we have the same purpose of stopping future complications, even serious complications, and this procedure is going to be less complicated and potentially could be reversed. And the CDF says no. Now it offers in the response or the reasoning two points um, to clarify on these two cases. It says from the moral point of view, the cases of hysterectomy and uterine isolation and the circumstances described in numbers two and three are different, are different than the first one. These fall into the moral category of direct sterilization which in Congregation of the Divine Face document Quecunque Sterilizatio, we've already seen, is defined as an action whose sole immediate effect is to render the generative faculty incapable of procreating. So it continues, citing the same document. It, direct sterilization, is absolutely forbidden according to the teaching of the Church, even when motivated by a subjectively right intention. So it's using this previous document to back up its argument that this is direct sterilization. There's not a clear and present threat to the mother. The organ isn't causing um, direct harm. In point of fact, the uterus as described in two does not constitute in and of itself any present danger to the woman, clarifying what I just said. The document is continuing. Indeed, the proposal to substitute uterine isolation for hysterectomy under the same conditions shows precisely that the uterus in and of itself does not pose a pathological problem for the woman. Therefore, the described procedures do not have a properly therapeutic character, but are aimed at themselves at rendering sterile future sexual acts freely chosen. The end of avoiding risks to the mother deriving from a possible pregnancy is thus pursued by means of a direct sterilization in itself always morally illicit 
while other ways, which are morally illicit, remain open to free choice. Basically, uh, we're talking about uh, NFP or the practice of periodic continence. It continues, the contrary opinion, which considers the interventions described as two and three as indirect sterilizations, licit under certain conditions, cannot be regarded as valid and may not be followed by Catholic hospitals. So uh, basically giving some directives, as the previous document did, for policy in Catholic hospitals. So sort of summation, um, to remove in view of preventing possible future danger is not licit, morally acceptable, because the uterus does not uh, propose a present danger. So it does not have a properly therapeutic character, neither hysterectomy nor tubal ligation. And so it is, in fact, a direct sterilization, not an intended, unintended consequence of a therapeutic procedure. So you can't apply the principle of double effect here. Um, it's non-therapeutic by saying this may happen in the future, so let's go ahead and sterilize. So again, why the church is going to make a big deal about this is because of that sort of unique nature of the reproductive faculty and the reproductive organs being able to bring forth life and sort of the sacred character that we looked about uh, looked at in last semester. So very recently, and the end of 2018, published in the beginning of 2019, a new CDF document that deals with sort of these same questions, but uh, different cases. And as we'll see, cases they don't specifically talk about that cause kind of a stir amongst Catholic bioethicists. And you can, of course, find this in the notes, the document. The question that this 2018 document poses is this. When the uterus is found to be irreversibly in such a state that it is no longer suitable for procreation and medical experts have reached the certainty that an eventual pregnancy will bring about a spontaneous abortion before the fetus is able to arrive at a viable state, is it licit to remove it through hysterectomy? And the document says, yes, because it does not regard sterilization. And then it offers an illustrative note. Before I get to that, I do want to sort of make a comment on what we've been discussing in class over the course of the past few lessons in this idea of procreation, but how procreation involves conception and then gestation. Um, it's what seems to be that, yes, here we've had conception, but the lining of the uterus or some damage to the uterus means that there is a medical certainty that they will not be able to carry the child to term. There'll be a spontaneous abortion that somehow gestation will be interfered with. Um, just sort of bringing that up because it's the distinction we've talked about and still seems to uh, be coming up in a lot of our discussions. Anyhow, back to that illustrative note. This is where it's going to sort of explain its reasoning. That it regards that this case or this question is regarding some extreme cases, I guess different cases that have been brought to the CDF over the course of the 25, 30 years since the 1993 document came out. However, it doesn't tell what the cases are. We can assume that they are different from the ones 
in that 1993 case, the cases, a response, probably maybe a bit more extreme, whatever that means. The note says, quote, the element that renders the present question essentially different than the previous ones is the certainty reached by medical experts that in the case of a pregnancy, it would be spontaneously interrupted before the fetus arrives at a state of viability. Here it is not a question of difficulty or of risk of greater or lesser importance, but of a couple for which it is not possible to procreate, or at least, unquote. So here, let's make the distinction. It is possible to conceive, but it is not possible to bring to term, to have full gestation, that the procreative aspect um, of implantation, of gestation, is not possible. The other ones it was, it just may have caused harm to the mother or posed some risk, but here, the uterus is not able to, I guess, perform to its normal end of bringing forth life of procreation. So the document says, quote, it cannot be a case of sterilization since in the case considered, sorry, since it cannot be considered a case of direct sterilization since in the case considered, quote, it is known that the reproductive organs are not capable of protecting a conceived child up to viability. Namely, they're not capable of fulfilling their natural procreative function. There's a rendering of the procreative ability to be impossible, or at least not come to full term. The objective of the procreative process is to bring a baby into the world. But here, the birth of a living fetus is not biologically possible. Implantation may be possible, but the uterus is not going to allow it to be brought to fulfillment. Therefore, we are not dealing with a def- we are not dealing with a defective or risky functioning of the pre- reproductive organs, organs, but are faced here with a situation in which the natural end of bringing a living child into the world is not attainable. So it's not just a um, defective, but sort of th- there's no ability to bring forth life in the specific extreme case. And so the document continues, the medical procedure should not be judged as being against procreation because we find ourselves within an objective context in which neither procreation nor as a consequence an anti-procreative action are possible because there's no potentiality for procreation. Um, it can't be actualized because it's not just defective, it's rendered unable of bringing forth life. Removing a procreative organ incapable of bringing a pregnancy to term should not therefore be qualified as direct sterilization, which is and remains intrinsically illicit as an ends and a means. So it's, re- unquote. So it's reinforcing the traditional teaching with saying that the uterus, this organ, is no longer capable of fulfilling the procreative function of realizing that potential, that there's no more potential there. But it's admitting here, though, that it's a medical and therefore a prudential decision made by doctors um, who we respect their authority that the uterus is not capable of bringing the child to birth. That a spontaneous abortion is going to happen. And so the moral decision is based on that advice that we have or the knowledge that we have from the doctor. Again, the document is neither, is neither is it going to say that this is the only option. There are other illicit options 
according to the conditions mentioned. It's just saying that in certain cases, it would be morally justifiable in this very specific case, not where there potentially is harm to the woman, as we saw in 1993's response, because that potential for procreation is rendered impossible. Now, as you may imagine, because of these distinctions here, and the fact that it didn't really specifically say what this case is, it sparked a fair amount of debate in Catholic medical ethics and bioethical circles. Um, basically, why is it that this case doesn't contradict uh, question number two of the 1993 response? And so there, you can go online and I've posted a couple of them, responses for and for in favor of the 2018 document and critiques of it. Um, the one that's in favor of it sort of gives the best explanation that I saw. This is from the Church Life Journal, the Notre Dame Church Life Journal. The new case, however, seemingly concerns the removal of a uterus, which is not capable of gestating a child to viability. I like this because it brings up gestation sort of as a part of procreation. Um, since the uterus is capable of providing viability, its removal is no way an act of sterilization. Basically, you can't sterilize something that doesn't have the, um, the potential for bringing forth life. In short, the CDF says, therefore, we are not dealing with the defective or risky functioning of the reproductive organs, but we are faced with a situation in which the natural end, the telos of bringing a living child into the world, is not attainable. So basically, the uterus can't sustain life to viability. It's, it's an inefficacious argument. Its potential has been rendered null and void. Therefore, it's not sterilization. Um, because the, the procreative function, the gestative function is not possible. The question, of course, comes back to well, what exactly are these cases? And the CDF doesn't explain. And I think that's the, the, the core of a lot of the critiques. Um, I've also posted a counter argument uh, that asks for clarification. And quite possibly within the next few years, the CDF may come and explain it. But basically, the document doesn't contradict the church's teaching, as it clearly says direct sterilization is not acceptable. But in this very specific and extreme case, judged by doctors and their prudential and medical decision, it seems that, that we're not going to be able to say that um, sterilization, it is sterilization, so therefore it would be morally acceptable and not morally illicit. So kind of complicated, and again, hopefully you're never going to come against or encounter some of these very extreme cases, but you can at least see the logic that is being proposed. Now, outside of that logic, let's look at it more in practical senses. And the church is teaching um, on the practice of sterilization in Catholic hospitals, because this is something contrary to the natural law. We would say that no hospital should do it, but particularly the church is going to have jurisdiction over the procedures in Catholic hospitals, or at least the individual ordinary in a diocese would have uh, a jurisdiction over the hospitals claiming to be Catholic within their diocese. So we've already seen the CDF document from 1975, and it makes three points in regards to Catholic hospitals that we are going to highlight here, which really deal with cooperation and evil. First of all, because here the hospital would be cooperating with the evil of direct sterilization. 
any cooperation which involves the approval of or consent of the hospitals to actions which are in themselves, that is by their nature and condition, by their object, we would say, directed to a contraceptive end, namely in order that the natural effects of sexual actions deliberately performed by the sterilized subject be impeded is absolutely forbidden. The church can't uh, condone a Catholic hospital or Catholic hospitals can't condone um, objectively evil acts, particularly one as serious as direct sterilization. For the official approbation of direct sterilization and a fortiori, its management and execution in accord with hospital regulations is a matter which, in the objective order, is by its very nature or intrinsically evil, basically making the argument for intrinsically evil acts. The Catholic hospital cannot cooperate with this for any reason. Uh, any cooperation so supplied is totally unbecoming the mission entrusted to this type of institution and would be contrary to the necessary proclamation and defense of the moral order. So the document then will go on in the next two points to sort of delineate uh, cooperation and evil, which we've already looked at uh, in our first lessons. The traditional doctrine regarding material cooperation, with the proper distinctions between necessary and free, proximate and remote, remains valid to be applied with the utmost prudence in the case warrants, if the case warrants. In the application of the principle of material cooperation, if the case warrants, great care must be taken against scandal and the danger of any misunderstanding by an appropriate explanation of what is really being done. So here, there would be kind of um, material cooperation, formal, if it is approving of it, uh, it's not going to be acceptable. Um, and so it sort of gives the keys for looking at it. I think not only a Catholic hospital doing it directly, but also cooperating with other institutions uh, that promote these evils. And, and so the ERDs are going to pick this up and it's going to be number 70 that deals specifically with um, sterilizations in Catholic hospitals. It states, quote, Catholic health care organizations are not permitted to engage in immediate material cooperation and actions that are intrinsically disordered. Uh, again, um, let's say even formally that they're against it, but there's this material cooperation that they are providing the means, the, the surgery room, the uh, doctors even. There's some sort of a material cooperation, even though it says it's opposed to it. In actions that are intrinsically immoral, such as abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and direct sterilization. It's not going to be able to do it. But what's interesting is the footnote, um, footnote number 48, if you look at it. And it basically lists different documents condemning sterilization as a very grave issue in the church's eyes, along with abortion and euthanasia. But the final part of the footnote states that Directive 70, here the ERDs, supersedes the, quote, commentary on the reply of the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith on sterilization in Catholic hospitals, published by the NCBC in September of 1977. So if you look at your Catholic healthcare ethics books, it's going to sort of describe that that in 1975, that Quecumque Sterilizatio came out, the bishops, the NCCBC, which used to be called then, put out a document, which I think was, from what I understand, that sort of a forceful document, 
backing up what um, 75 documents said. However, the footnote says the CDF believes the commentary, um, in addition to the former appendix, led to misapplications of the principle of cooperation by suggesting that direct sterilizations could be performed for reasons of duress. Now, I haven't read this document and I haven't been able to find the document. Um, so basically, there was going to be some confusion that came from it. So that document is rendered null and void. Maybe that's one of the reasons that you really can't find it. Um, so basically, you can't have formal cooperation in this evil. You can't have material cooperation in the evil. And for a Catholic hospital to be somehow connected to it would definitely be, um, I would say, proximate and not remote. Um, so we have to be very, very careful with this. And it makes sense. It makes sense. You're not going to have abortions in Catholic hospitals. You're not going to have euthanasia performed there because of the ERDs and because of the principles that we have as practicing Catholics. Now, here's a little pastoral question for you. Um, let's say you as a priest um, or even a layperson, particularly as a priest, find out let's say from a nurse that you know or a doctor you know or someone working at the hospital a catholic hospital in your town that doctors are indeed performing sterilizations um let's say after a woman has a complicated pregnancy to say hey would you like a tubal ligation um hopefully not forcing on it against her will because she still has autonomy but offering this sort of undercover um, where maybe the administrators or the head nurses, the doc other doctors don't know what's going on. Uh, it's quite possible that you are going to face this because not all doctors or not all nurses, let's say, who work at a Catholic institution, A, are going to be Catholic, or B, are going to accept the Catholic Church teaching. What should you do in a situation like this? Well, it's somewhat complicated because, first of all, you're hearing about it secondhand. So it could just be rumor. Uh, it may not be legitimate. Um, it could be something that is not true or misunderstanding or a misconception. But still, let's say that you have it from a pretty credible source. I think there would be a number of different options. One, you could potentially bring it to the ethics committee at the hospital. Um, you could bring it to administration if you know anybody there. Um, or you could talk to a priest in your diocese who maybe is the resident bioethicist or one who is working at the hospital as a chaplain, let's say, uh, to bring up these concerns, not as an accusation, but at least that it could be investigated. If you have really, really good information, you might even choose to bring it to your bishop. Again, we want to be very careful that we are um, not spreading gossip or rumors or potentially destroying someone's reputation. But these are serious things, and it may warrant investigation. Um, again, that's the point. The hospital on surface is saying, no, we're not doing this. But either A, they're not aware the doctors are doing it, or B, maybe they're just turning a blind eye to it. Um, and this certainly is cooperation and evil, and could also, as the document says, cause scandal. So we want to be very, very careful with that. Uh, just in case, you know, you don't want to go on a witch hunt looking for this or, or investigating it um, because it's going to be hard. Many of these hospitals, these massive multi-million dollar uh, conglomerates, it's going to be hard to monitor on a local level 
um, particularly with the, the diversity that we do have with medical staffs today. Um, but just something that I wanted to bring up as a possible pastoral application. Let's move now to looking at governments um, and sterilization. Uh, of course, the Vatican is going to hold to the point that no government should promote or allow these things, just like it shouldn't promote abortion or euthanasia because they are contrary to the natural law. We've already looked at the fact that most people don't understand or accept the natural law because they don't believe in God or the ability of reason to perceive the truth. Um, so instead of really focusing on that, let's look at mandates from public authority. Uh, and so going back to Que Cumque Sterilizatio, the document says, quote, neither can any mandate of public authority, which would seek to impose direct sterilization as necessary for the common good, be invoked, for such sterilization damages the dignity and inviability of the human person, unquote. So here we're going against this principle of autonomy, uh, not that one should ever choose that um, to have a sterilization, but let's say it's forced on someone, particularly if they do not know what's happening. <clears throat> this really, I think, harkens back to Humana Vitae in one of the prophecies that Paul VI talked about when it comes to contraception or sterilization, the, the dangers of this power, quote, passing into the hands of those public authorities who care little for the precepts of the moral law, who will prevent public authorities from favoring those contraceptive methods which they consider more effective. Should they regard this as necessary, they may even impose their use on everyone, unquote. Now, this could seem like an extreme case, but governments, particularly in the 20th century, have been known to abuse their power. You know, interestingly, from our discussion about gender, I think this is a clear case of biopower, not necessarily through the dialectic, but through actually controlling life uh, by rendering the bringing forth of new life impossible on certain um, subsets, demographics in the population that the powers that be disseminated throughout the grid consider uh, undesirable for reproducing. This is basically eugenics, and we're going to see a little bit more about eugenics, eugenics later on. Maybe after I teach this class on bioethics and I, I kind of start thinking about the future and what I might do, I may warrant a whole class on it. But of course, eugenics is the science that rose from the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, as sort of an offshoot of social Darwinism, where we realized we could take the principles of natural selection and apply them ourselves by rooting out undesirables, um, particularly here through contraception, uh, abortion, and other practices. Margaret Sanger was a big proponent. Um, and of course, Hitler's eugenicism is the strongest example. We might even also think of China's one-child policy. Um, but here, not just the promotion of contraception, but really direct sterilization would be in this eugenic mentality one of the best ways to eradicate undesirable populations. And we could point the finger at China, we could point the finger at Nazi Germany, but the United States has a pretty disturbing history of eugenics dating back to less than a hundred years even. Looking at, and you could do some research, I can send you some references for this, the Supreme Court case of Buck versus Bell, 
um, decided that a Virginia law authorizing the mandatory sterilization of inmates, here particularly it's uh, Kerry Buck, uh, and mental institutions was constitutional. So here we're talking about unjust uh, Supreme Court decisions that can be overturned. It was in 1927, the Virginia law allowing the sterilization of patients in mental institutions was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in this case. And the decision, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes made his now infamous proclamation that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, unquote, referring to Carrie Buck, her mother and daughter. Carrie was committed to a state mental institution as a feeble-minded woman. And the Virginia law allowed for forced sterilization uh, allegedly for the health of the patient and the welfare of society. So you had here um, this this population of Virginia that was allowed to be sterilized. Carol LaFornia's Asexualization Acts in the 1910s and 20s led to the sterilization of 20,000 disproportionately black and Mexican people who were deemed mentally ill or unfit. Here you have the government deciding, well, these people are unfit, so we're going to mandate sterilization. What about the forced sterilization of black women in North Carolina in the 20th century? And basically throughout the 20th century, nearly 70,000 people, overwhelmingly working class women of color were sterilized in 30 states. Um, black women, Latina women, and Native American women were specifically targeted. No wonder you, you have like a suspicion amongst the African com American community at these forced vaccine mandates. Uh, other tests that have happened, we're going to look at too, or that it's generally we understand minority populations are going to be hesitant about this. But look at the language. Uh, these are undesirable. They they don't rank as these people don't rank as high on the the moral status, whatever calculus people use instead of the Christian perspective that they have inherent dignity and you don't forcibly, forcibly sterilize people. Now, a, a question that is brought up today is what about um, sterilization for prisoners, particularly prisoners who are um, rapists or, or whatnot, who are sexual offenders. Uh, the case of allowing them to be willfully choose to be sterilized for sentence reductions. Again, the church is going to say that regardless of the intention, and this is not going to be something that an individual should choose. You really shouldn't force them in the population, uh, but it is an intrinsically disordered act. Um, but that is a debate that who knows may come to the forefront later on. We also supposedly were some some news reports uh, of a supposed sterilization of immigrants by uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, um, but that was in the news a few years back. Regardless, minority populations are going to be the ones that suffer and always suffer when it comes to these types of policies, um, showing that you know our, our our handlers, our operators, know best, um, and so that. Now, that attitude is one that the church is always going to be against and one that Pius spoke against, not only for, um, I'm sorry, Paul VI warned about in Humanae Vitae, not only for the objective evil of it, but the way that governments can and have used sterilization for eugenic purposes. And I think it's something that is important in sort of the debate or dialogue about this to bring up. Um, 
and one where where race and sort of respect for minorities is so important to be able to look at the recent history and to see how abuses have have happened. Now, I want to sort of close or, or wrap up by looking at pastoral situations, which I mentioned earlier, that I faced and I think most priests face. This is not going to be about medical procedures or forced sterilizations or some of these extreme cases of hysterectomies, but of the, a, a couple, a man or a woman, particularly at a young age, who choose voluntarily to have either a tubal ligation, to have their tubes tied, or a vasectomy. Um, there are going to be cases, I think they're going to be rarer when they come before they choose than after, uh, when they say, Father, we're, th- we're worried about our wife, my, my wife, that she, if she has another child, she could die, or we don't want to have any other children, and if P is too difficult, and they want to choose to have this procedure, one of these procedures. Or maybe it's the husband trying to force the wife, or the wife demanding the husband get the vasectomy. So again, you're getting to some of these issues where there could be forced or coercion where the act is not necessarily fully freely chosen, which I think we looked at a little bit when it comes to one spouse doesn't want to contracept, but the other one does, and, and how you you navigate that in real life. How do you speak to the, to someone who wants to have it, or maybe, and as we'll see, someone who has already had it? We've got to stick to the church teaching um, and to be able to explain why this is unacceptable. And remember, just like when it comes to IVF and so many other things, over the course of the past 40 or 50 years, the church has not, or pastors have not done a good job of talking about this particularly in an environment where this technological process seems to be very logical, particularly if it can help um, save lives, not even just for a purely contraceptive purpose. But I think one of the biggest things to do is to encourage both men and women to think ahead, particularly if they're young. Let's say they've had a couple of kids in their their mid-20s. Let's think ahead. This is going to be a decision that may be irreversible. If the moral tact or the magisterial tact doesn't work, uh, to say, ladies, you know, when you hit your 30s, uh, the hormones are going to kick in. It's why often when a woman really wants to have a child and because of potential complications, it might be very difficult for you to have a, a reversal. And then it's going to be even harder for you to have a child in the first place to really consider the ramifications down the line. Well, the same thing with men, even though there many will claim that it doesn't have an impact on one's virility, at least on a hormonal level, could it on a psychological level? Also from men I've talked to who've had this say, it is very painful, much more than the doctor said, uh, to be able to choose to have the, the vasectomy. Um, but I think that the question you're going to get more often is going to be what to do after a man or a woman comes and they have had the choice. Maybe they were younger and they're still in childbearing years and they have gone to confession. They've repented or maybe they're coming to you for confession. Father, I'm sorry I chose this. <clears throat> the question comes, should they reverse it? Or particularly should the man reverse his vasectomy? 
And what you've got to understand is Catholics are not required to have a reversal, particularly in confession. Do not make, you know, uh, a condition that you'll give them absolution if they have a reversal. It's not required, um, particularly because as they get older, every surgery is complicated. Um, could they, if they want to, choose to have the reversal? Yes, and I've seen couples who have done that, and they've had great success, and they've been very blessed by having more children. Um, but you can't force a couple to do it, or you can't demand someone to do it. Please keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> could you encourage them potentially as maybe an act of penance or an act of discipline, um, not force, but encourage to, to, to practice NFP? if they can't reverse it, um, just to bring some discipline and new ways to maybe show um, intimacy within a marriage. I've often encouraged couples to do that. Again, you can't force them to do it. You can't say you're gonna do this the rest of your life, that's unjust. But it is something that you could uh, encourage them to consider by practicing uh, the cycles of getting, it helps of course getting in touch with your body and also just the general communication between man and woman, husband and wife. So you will encounter that. So please, from that pastoral perspective, you can't force someone to undo the vasectomy or the tubal ligation. Um, the best you can do is grant them forgiveness, trust in their contrition, and maybe encourage them to look into and practice NFP. One last thing. You know, we brought up a lot. Why does the church make such a big deal about contraception? And we've talked about it, at least I think the important argument is the sacred character or the sacred nature of it. Um, we can also look at virtues of self-control. We can look at the respect for the body. But this is a really, really hard teaching, particularly when it comes to the ability to have a tubal ligation or a vasectomy what is seen as an easy form of contraception, um, particularly if there is the threat of the life of the mother, not talking about the cases we've discussed, but hey, if she gets pregnant, uh, there could be preeclampsia, there could be something else. It would seem logical in the minds of a lot of people. This seems like to be totally unreasonable teaching. And I think it goes back to the fact that unless you're a praying Christian, and unless you have a proper under sacramental worldview, unless you have a proper understanding of the body and the sacredness of the unitive and procreative aspects of the body, yeah, this is going to seem to be very illogical. It's not going to make sense. We're going to put the, the health of the, the, the woman above the, the, the good of the procreative act. And you're going to see doctors who, women come to you and say, the doctor said, you should, hey, this, you, had, you had a difficult pregnancy, let's just do the tubal ligation. Um, and sort of trying to really force women into it or encourage her. Um, is it easier to do the ligate, tubal ligation? Possibly so, but it doesn't make it moral. And so this is where I think coming back to this in a very technocratic age um, to understand the church's position, you're going to have to have that sacramental worldview. You're going to have to be able to see the dignity of the human person to see God working in and through the human body and, and the, the meaning of the marital act. And it'll take some self-control um, and a lot more abstaining than maybe you would have wanted to. But again, it gets back to some of the other questions we dealt with previously about the purpose of sex, um, the frequency of sex, 
and its meaning within the context of the Christian mystery and sort of that unitive and procreative, the inseparability, inseparability principles. But that's something we could discuss at another time. I think I've covered most of the bases when it comes to the issues of sterilization, sort of a detailed analysis, reading a lot more than I probably wanted to out of documents. Uh, but hopefully you have that in mind as you, we move forward, uh, continuing to look at these beginning of life issues.